Well, good morning, Rock Point. This is the last message in our marriage series, Good to Great. And this morning, I want to look at a few of the characteristics that define great marriages. And the thing that I find so encouraging about what we're talking about this morning is that this is transferable. This is transferable to all of our relationships. Whether you're married or not, this is a message for you. If you are married, I'm encouraged because you're going to see that all of us, all of us from newlyweds to to oldieweds, all of us have the opportunity to have a great marriage. Well, let's begin this morning by looking at a few of the characteristics. This is not an exhaustive list, just a few of the characteristics that define great marriages. Here at Rock Point, we talk about, you'll hear this often, the three essentials for marriage. And in a great marriage... Each spouse understands these three essentials, and they're intentional about applying them throughout all stages of marriage, especially the child-rearing years. A great marriage is also growing. Growing in your marriage, but also growing in your relationship with Christ. This is why we've developed Trek, and and all of us need to be involved in Trek, either either as a learner or, or as a teacher. Another characteristic is that when people see your marriage, they want what you have. Because you see, in a a great marriage, a great marriage, it's appealing to a broken world that out there, they're looking for something. And in a broken world, things that work get noticed. And the question is, do people see, do, do your children see, do they see the difference that Christ is making in our relationships? A great marriage is also defined as being full of grace. Edie and I, we've now been married for over 33 years. And we are are madly in love with one another. But you know, sometimes we're just mad. Sometimes she drives me crazy. And vice versa, we are so different. Sometimes I'm selfish. Ever now and then, she's selfish. Some of you, you've heard our story, and it's a story of triumph over adultery on my part early in our marriage. But you see, Edie's love for me was not enough to get us through that very difficult period in our marriage. But her love for God and his grace in her life was... Because what Edie was willing to do was she was willing to extend the undeserved grace that she received from above outward toward me, to a a man that did not deserve grace. You see, the problem in our marriage is is that we both married sinners. (laughs) And yet, God's grace falls on us like rain. That's why I love the song by Todd Agnew that we sang, Grace Like Rain. Because you see, daily, daily I stand in that grace. And if you've lived in Texas very long, you know you don't stand in the rain without being drenched. So how do I stand here before you this morning absolutely sopping wet? How how do you sit there drenched and not be willing to look up and see the grace that is falling on us like rain? And not be willing to extend that grace outward towards people who may not deserve it. Towards our spouse, towards our friends, our family, church members, our children, 
church staff. One pastor, he sort of summed this up this way. He said, you know, forgiven sinners, we forgive sin. Well, the last characteristic and the one that we're going to spend all our time on this morning focusing on is that of humility. Every now and then I come across a passage of Scripture. I hope this happens to you, but it does me anyway. I'll come across this passage of Scripture that I just cannot get away from. This passage in Philippians we're going to be looking at this morning, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 3 in a moment. And it's one that I've been chewing on because I've been thinking about what I'm reading and, and trying to make the connection between what I'm reading and what I'm seeing because what I've observed is that in great marriages, each spouse is putting the other first. And I've become convinced after Edie and I, we've been in marriage ministry now for almost 25 years. I've been convinced that if each of you puts the other first, that everything else falls into place. I want to repeat that because that's a pretty bold statement. If each of you puts the other first, then everything else falls into place. Well, this morning I've got a little illustration to help show you this connection between humility and great marriages, okay? And I totally stole this from Ron Deal. He was here a few months ago leading a blended family conference. And, and, and do you know why we wear our wedding ring on our fourth finger? Well, the Chinese, they have an explanation, and it goes something like this. Now, this is participatory. If you don't work with me, you're not going to get this, okay? So I want you to take your middle fingers, and I want you to put them together like this. All right? Get that? All right. The rest of your fingers, I want you to touch the tips of with your thumb. So you've got something that looks like this. Well, the Chinese say that our thumbs represent a connection, and it's a connection to our parents. But there's a time and a place where we'll separate from our parents. Scripture says we are to leave our parents and cleave to our spouse. Well, our index fingers represent the connection to our siblings. You know, in a sense, you really do marry into your spouse's whole family, don't you? And some of you, you don't understand the implications of what I'm talking about here. And you want to separate. Well, your, your pinkies, they represent your children. But once again, your, your children, they're going to grow up. They're going to become independent. Hopefully that means they move out of the house. And so in a sense, there's this separation. Well, your, your ring finger represents you and your spouse. Okay? So... We can separate from our parents. We can separate from our siblings. We can separate from our children. But now here's what I want you to try. I want you to try to separate your ring finger. Anybody? Huh? Can anybody in here separate your ring finger? You can't, can you? You see, that's the way marriage is supposed to be. Christ said, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There is a bonding that takes place in marriage. But let me add something to this illustration. Your middle fingers, the ones that are bent, those fingers represent you as a person. And as long as each of you are bending the knee in humility toward the other, then it's impossible to separate those ring fingers. But look at this. If you allow pride to stand up in your life, then it's possible to separate 
what God's joined together. Because you see, pride, pride is the antithesis of humility. Pride breaks relationships. But as long as both spouses, and notice I'm saying both spouses, bend the knee in humility, it's impossible to separate those ring fingers. Well, apparently humility is important to great marriages. Let's take a look at what some have said about humility. C.S. Lewis, he said this, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. No, it's thinking of yourself less. And I would add in thinking of others more. Augustine of Hippo, one of our early church fathers, said, For those that would learn God's ways, humility, oh, that's the first thing. It's also the second thing. And by the way, it's the third thing. John Stott, he said it this way, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Sometimes when I look at my own life, I I think I am not so sure that humility is my greatest friend, a distant acquaintance perhaps. I think, unfortunately for me, I'm more like a friend of mine. He actually went to vacation Bible school and he won a medal for humility. Huh? And then he, he wore it the next day, and they took it away from him. <laughs> when we look at humility from a biblical basis, I like this definition. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. I like this definition because it means that all of us are being called to have a proper self-perception. So when I assess myself in light of this definition, I think, well, maybe I'm much more like one of, uh, one of Winston Churchill's political opponents. You know, Churchill, he had it down. He, he was a master of put-downs. And he said this of one of his opponents. He said, well, he is a very modest man. And he has a lot to be modest about. <laughs> and as soon as I say that, I think, look at me, aren't I humble? And then I think, maybe I'm more like John Ortberg, who said, but what if I become humble? <laughs> and none of you notice. I think the best I can say is that I am a man that's pursuing humility. And I hope that today my life is characterized by more humility than it was yesterday. You know, often in marriage counseling, I'll start by asking the obvious, so what's the problem? And each spouse will typically launch into a list of of grievances that that they have. And, And the idea is, is that if they can just help me see their spouse the way they see their spouse, then what we'll do is we'll form this alliance to fix their, their spouse, right? And, and often it goes like, well, he's, he's doing this, and she, she, she's not doing this, and on and on. You get the idea, right? Sometimes, in essence, what they're really saying is, he's killing me. Can't you see? She's, she's killing me. Can't you see? And sometimes I can see. Sometimes that spouse is killing him. Christ was being killed. Christ was being wrong in the most horrific way on the cross, and yet he looked down at the very people that were killing him, and he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You see, he was dying for the very people that were killing him. And in essence, 
That's what all of us as Christ followers, that's what we're being called to do. We're being called to die to self for the benefit of others, sometimes those that are killing us. The Apostle Paul, he gives us the greatest example of humility. And in Philippians, he talks about what having the mind of Christ looks like. And in using Christ as his example, Paul starts talking about two sides of the same coin. One side is, how am I to live toward others? The other side is, how am I to respond toward others, especially in those times when I'm being treated in a way that I don't deserve? Well, as we look at this passage in Philippians, this this passage I've been chewing on, in order to grasp the significance of what Paul's talking about here, just, just a little background I think is in order. Philippians is one of Paul's prison epistles. It was written around 60, 61, 62 AD. We know he was in prison. We believe he was imprisoned in Rome. And Philippians is called the book of joy. And what we see in it, we see a paradox. We see a paradox between a man in prison, yet someone is rejoicing. He was being treated in a way that he didn't deserve. He was being wronged. He was enduring hardship. He was being mistreated, sometimes like we find ourselves in our relationships. And yet, Paul keeps emphasizing this idea of rejoicing in spite of our circumstances, even when they're being caused by the action of others. Well, in chapter 2, verse 3, we read in Philippians, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Edie and I, we lived in Alaska for a number of years. And from time to time, we would travel up to Mount McKinley. And in the park, Mount McKinley is the tallest mountain in North America. And in the park, there's a plaque you can read about the mountain. And the interesting thing about the plaque is is that if you're standing there reading the plaque, you're too close to the mountain. And you miss the magnificence of its grandeur. Well, this morning, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking closely at this, at this plaque, if you will, that Paul's left. But in doing so, I fear you're going to miss the majesty of this passage. And so I would encourage you to go back and to read it for what it says about who Jesus is. That he came to this earth as the God-man, fully God, less nothing. Fully man, less only a sin nature. Well, the key... This morning, the key to having a great marriage, the key to having great relationships with others is found in verse 3. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Verse 3 deals with how we view others. Verse 4, with how we relate to them. And verse 4 really is a repeat of Jesus' words, love your neighbor as yourself. See, the problem is, I often forget to apply the Love my neighbor verses, the doing to my neighbor verses, to my closest neighbor, my spouse. And I want you to notice here 
the mental attitude of Christ. Because Christ didn't regard his privileged position as God as something that he needed to retain, to grasp, to, to, to hold on to. It says, but he made himself nothing. The kenosis of Christ here. Literally, the emptying of Christ. And this is important doctrine for you to get. Christ did not empty himself of any aspect of his deity as God. But what he did, I believe, empty himself of were the privileges that went with being God. I think what that looked like here on earth is that when he was being treated in a way that he didn't deserve, he didn't flip out the business card that said, oh, me? eh, God. He didn't grasp it. Well, this attitude of Christ, this, this way of thinking, it resulted in action. You see, Jesus was willing to alter his behavior for the welfare, easy for you to say, welfare of others. He selflessly gave up what was in his own best interest for the interests of others. And Paul is asking ourselves to ask this question. Do I have this servant mindset? Am I serving my spouse? Especially in those times when it's not convenient, when I don't want to. You know, times like the crazy hour. You know that hour. That was the hour before you got here to church, right? When your spouse was running around trying to get the kids ready. Did, did we hop, hop in and, and help? Times like when there's been a drought. We've had drought all over the state of Texas. Has there been a drought in the bedroom for your spouse? Because you're tired? You know, all of us. All of us have ample opportunities to serve our spouse. But often, in my marriage and in yours, they come at times when it's inconvenient, at times when I don't want to, at times when I have to give something up. Well, Paul doesn't just stop at telling us how to live with others. He goes on and he tells us how to change our thinking, how to alter our behavior, especially in times when we find ourselves in Difficult circumstances. We move over to Philippians 4. And we're going to start in verse 6. Philippians 4, 6. Do not not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us what to think about. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. When I'm working with a couple that's experiencing unresolved conflict in their marriage, often what they're focused on is their list of grievances that their spouse is doing or not doing. And, you know, really, all of us, we tend to have this, this script, this, this mental script that will play over and over in our minds during those times when our spouse isn't doing their part. And so one of the exercises I'll have a couple do is to read this passage and then to reflect on all the things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy about their spouse, to reflect on those things. And I know that's kind of a long list, and so... I've developed this easy-to-remember acronym 
to help us remember. Here it is. Huh? <laughs> Tenorplot EP, huh? Tenorplot EP. By reflecting on Tenorplot EP, I can change my perspective from looking over to looking up, from here's what I need, here's what I want, here's what I deserve, to, okay, Lord, she is acting that way. What do I need to do to change me? And this is, this is not just theory for me. I mean, I have a tenorplot EP list for those times that Edie frustrates me. It helps me remember, you know what, she is a good-willed person. She's not doing this to, to make me mad, usually. Because what I love about her is that she's patient, especially with difficult people. She's fun. She's self-sufficient. She's strong. She cares about people. She's beautiful inside and out. She's smart. She's a great mom. She's an encourager. She's sacrificial. She's humble. She takes care of insurance. <laughs> My tenorplot EP list. I want to be clear about something here, though. Paul is talking about how to change our perspective of how we view others, especially in difficult circumstances. But this is not to be considered a license to ignore valid issues in our marriage. Rather, I see it more as a vehicle for the mind to help carry us along this journey called marriage that sometimes feels like a bumpy road. Well, if a great marriage involves humility, and humility comes from having the mind of Christ, where does our motivation for humility come from? Why don't we watch the screen and let a man named Bill tell us. I don't count it a burden, whatever, to have to care for her. I, I need to do everything. From the moment she gets up to the moment she goes to bed, I do absolutely everything. Um, I clean her teeth, I shower, dress, everything. And... Um, but it's, it's a privilege. I count it a great privilege to, to care for this one that I've loved all of these years and continue to love. This is the year where we'll celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. Our stories have been a, a lovely story. I first saw her when she was eight years old and her brother became my best friend. We grew up together and as we grew up, yes, yeah, she was there. And I knew that she used to stare at me when I was playing footy with my, with her brother and uh, another friend. And when we used to ride bikes, and she kept staring at me, but I wasn't interested. I was 17, she was 16. I saw her dolled up, dressed up, and she had an A-line dress on, and boom, it was gone. I was, uh, she was the one for me then, absolutely. <laughs> When we first started uh, dating, I used to ride my bike from where I lived to where she was, and that was about five kilometers on a Saturday afternoon, because it was the only chance we had to get together. And uh, it was hair wash day for her, and she used a special cream in her hair for her shampoo, and I can still smell it, because that smell was so particular, so nice, it's just absolutely special. We had a bike. I used to ride everywhere on my bike, and then Glad had a bike as well, and we put a, a baby chair on the front of her bike, and so we carried our babies around on the bike with her as well. So 
Yeah, bike's been part of our lives, and I guess that has something to do with us now. Around about 2004, five, I began to notice uh, that there were things going wrong. She was finally diagnosed with uh, the horrible disease of Alzheimer's. Having lived overseas, I knew that with a bike you can do lots of things. So I had a bike made, a bike chair made. We take it to the beach and ride along beside the beach. And as we do that, we see lots of people. A lot of people come talk to us because it's a, a unique thing. Nobody else has got a bike chair quite like that one. I am determined to care for her every need, every need. You see, God has loved us so unconditionally. And I understand that God has put his love in my heart. And because I realize how much God has loved me, that's how I too can love my lovely wife. She has done so much for me over all of these years. Now she can't, but I can. And I can return her love. And it's a love that, uh, well, to me, means I can do everything for her. She's my princess. I'm her William. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Would you have it any other way? No, 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 not at all. We love each other. Did you catch it? Did you hear what he said? He said he's able to care for his wife because of God's unconditional love for him. You see, Bill's love for his wife is not based on her performance because she is no longer capable of meeting his needs. But Bill's love for his wife, his humble servant mindset, it comes from his love for God because of God's unconditional love for Bill. You see, Bill, Bill's looking up. He's not looking over. I realize that this morning, fortunately, most of us, we're not facing this situation in our marriage. So how do we personalize this in our marriage? What might have it, having this, this humble servant mindset look like in, in your marriage? I'll end this morning with a few ways that we can practically serve our spouse. The first I would say is we need to listen to our spouse. Become a student of our spouse. Looking to the interests of others means that I'm actively looking for ways to meet my spouse's need. Tenorplaw EP. Tenorplaw EP. Let me challenge you. Let me challenge you to go back and read Philippians 4, 6 through 8. Right? You need to read it in the NIV. If you read it in the New King James, it'll be Thurplaw EP, and it has no, has no ring to it. <laughs> Develop your own list of the things you love about your spouse and share them with your spouse in the next 30 days. And then lastly, we need to discover and build on God's plan for marriage. Psalms 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders, they're laboring in vain. And I'm afraid some of us are building using the wrong set of blueprints. We have a number of opportunities to build your marriage, to find out God's plan for marriage. You can find out all of the details at the Rock Point website. Uh, you can go to the Married Life page. You know, in closing, all of us, all of us have the opportunity to have a great marriage. We do. 
we have the opportunity to have a great marriage by developing the mind of Christ and serving our spouse with a servant mindset. Remember what Bill said? He said, I can do this because of God's unconditional love for me. The world out there, they're watching. They're watching to see the difference that Christ is making in our relationships. As I close, I realize that there may be someone here that you're thinking, that's great. I don't even have a good marriage, much less a great marriage, and that I never will. Well, I've got a gift for you. There are some books on the back table outside. They're free. It's called Beyond Ordinary. And it's a great story of a couple that took broken to great. Grab a copy if you or someone you know needs to be encouraged. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that all of us here at Rock Point, all of us will become a people with a servant mindset. Lord, help us to see others as you see them. Help us to remember your unconditional love for us as we look up and not over. Help us to extend the grace that falls like rain in our lives, outward toward others. Help us, Lord, in difficult times to remember to treat others, to see others as you see them. In Christ's name, amen.